You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. This week, Sarah talks with Ash Soen. Our guest today is known for being a highly in-demand studio musician, as well as a touring drummer. Ash Stone has played on an incredible amount of number one records in every genre of music, is an in-demand clinician, and has created a really great social media following as well. Today, we're going to talk to Ash about his signature sound and recording studio, his experiences over the years, and we will hear some fun stories from the many he has amassed in his travels. Stay tuned for an inside look at the life and career of Ash Stone. Ash Stone, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you? Pretty good, yeah. You know, uh, it's um, obviously winter over here. It's dark. doesn't look it really in that, in that over there, but it is. It's getting really dark, and it's only like 4 p.m. But other than that, everything's all right, thanks. You know, we're hanging in there. There's, London is in a bit of a strange place with the pandemic and stuff at the moment, but, you know, everyone's still hanging in there. You know? Good, that's good. Playing, right. trying that's to be- all we can do. Yeah. Um, it's great to have you here today, though. Thank you so much for joining well, us. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I feel like we have so much to talk about today. <laughs> Um, And just off of our conversations that we've had over the years, I know that you have so many stories and so many experiences, and um, we're all lucky to to be able to um, hear you talk about them. So we wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you started your journey in music. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, coming up, starting playing and how old you were and all of that? Yeah, I mean, my dad... um... I lost my dad a few months ago, sadly. Um, not, so sorry. Not, yeah, not through COVID, but um, yeah. But he um, basically played me a record, um, a, a track called Let There Be Drums by a guy called Sandy Nelson. I was 10, 10 years old. And it was a, it was, it was a record. It was no, uh, no cassette or anything back then, mm-hmm. showing show my age. Um, and uh, yeah, he he played me this, this track and I'd never heard anything quite like it. Really. This, the sound, if you listen that track, you can, people can check it out. Um, let there be drums by Sandy Nelson. And it's, it's like a sort of surf. Um, it's kind of like surf music. So it's a predominantly electric guitar and, and this really sort of Gene Krupery Tom, Tom drum beat, you know, um, but I'd never heard anything like it uh, up until that point. You know, this would be 1980. Wow! So, so the so the music that were that was around at the time was nowhere near like the 60s sounding track. And and but just the sound of the drums, Summit, you know, took hold with me. And uh, and I bugged my mum and dad then, you know, to get a drum kit, like like lots of sort of youngsters do. And they they kind of, uh, in fairness to them, they let me they, they wanted to see if I would still be into it in a week's time in a month's time mm-hmm. in, a, in a in six months time and basically i was so ba- a whole year went by and i was still bugging them for uh for, you know to get the drums um and i a f- friend of mine at school her brother um 
had a drum kit and he was he was a teenager so we'd have been i would have been 10 he would have been about 16 17 um so you know quite a lot older and he had a kit um and i used to go around to their house to to see my friend but essentially i wanted to <laughs> wanted to just chick uh, pick this guy's brains about his drums and i bugged my mom and dad bugged them bugged them bugged them and eventually for my uh 11th birthday they bought me a drum kit and that's and then that was it I, it the whole thing started um my music teacher at school uh he basically was a piano a piano player jazz piano player mm-hmm. and uh, so when i was 11 i was in a little trio with him and another student that played upright bass uh and that was my sort of first real experience of, of actually wow this could this could be like a career this could because i started earning some money we would do little uh dinner dances and stuff with my, my music teacher my dad mm-hmm. would drive me to the gig would be the roadie and drive me with the drums and and stay there and then pat the drums down at the end um but i would get about 20 pounds wow which back in 1981 was quite a lot of money you know it's it was kind of i remember at the time my dad saying you know some of my friends were doing a paper round and they were earning that sort of money after in, in like a month you know right and i was getting it just for, for having some fun basically playing the drums so it was like a the the first little spark of like wow this if you get good then it could turn into a whole life of experience and being able to support yourself hopefully etc and uh yeah so that was the spark really that played me you know i love that and you and you and you mentioned the word spark and just your your story really kind of reminded me of the the disney movie soul i don't know if you've seen that yet watched it um was it last night or the night before yeah yeah i i you know exactly what you just said is it just it just uh, reminded me of the movie with the spark and the you know the piano player and playing the drums yeah. and i i just think it's so interesting that you know so many of the people that we know in the industry yeah. have posted about that movie and how it just hit a note inside yeah. about the experience of discovering music and discovering your passion for it and your love for it and just how that ha- it does happen like that suddenly you realize this is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, and for me also, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, school, you know, homeschooling now, and I've got children myself. And it, interestingly, with my kids now, it, it's I can put myself in my parents' position at the time, and it's pretty amazing. They bought me a drum kit and let me set it a full, loud thing in, yes. my, in my bedroom and just let me play. Yeah, and, and I guess I'd do that for my kids, although they they could come here. But it, it's quite a big deal that you know, just the noise, the the commitment to driving me around. You know, God rest my dad, and uh, for doing that, mm-hmm. uh, being in that position, and you know, it's interesting. You know, be, being a dad now and looking at that and the way that the way that happened. Also, you know, for me. The reason I call it a spark in a, in a way is because I didn't do particularly well at school. And, um, you know, academically, I found it a challenge, like quite a lot of musicians, arty, creative people, whatever you want to call us, mm-hmm. 
do you know we kind of and back then you know now if you're creative that's as important i think in school and they recognize that as being as important as you know, academic side whereas you know end of the 70s you, really it's like no 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 music you know you've got to do a real job and that is still around now but less so mm-hmm. and i think my parents recognized that spark in me regarding music and uh, and i'll thank them forever for it because here i am in my in my little den you know yeah. with the with the things that have happened in my life i'm 51 years old now it's been a while <laughs> that, that is that's pretty amazing and you know think think so thankful to um the parents who really recognize that in children and foster it and encourage it and you're right i mean drums is expensive and it takes up a lot of space and it's loud and it and it you know requires a lot of commitment right so yeah um but i think it's one of those things where um you know you find something that you're passionate about um you have to be passionate about drumming because it does take a lot to 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 make it you know to become yeah. ash zone it took it took a lot of time and effort um on your part and commitment to it um and so i think when you're passionate about something like that that's what it takes to actually make it happen yeah um, so that's amazing and now look where you are i want to talk about your space here yeah. because this is fantastic and the videos that you post on instagram are amazing um, just looking at your studio, and it's the the windmill studios, right? That's what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's the bottom of a windmill, um, and uh, I yeah, I mean, not very inspired. I <laughs> call it the windmill studio. So yeah, that picture that's on the screen there, the bottom picture is what was here, and obviously that bit at the top is where I am, and we built in the in the base. If you can if you can see that, so it's the same. Uh, that some of the brick is the same. Um, yeah. And you can see in that picture at the bottom, there's some guys just at the bottom there. Oh, yeah, look at that. And up the steps, you see that sort of entrance, which is halfway up the wooden structure. Mm-hmm. There's somebody sat on the steps there as well. And those people would have lived in my house that I live in now. That is amazing. So, that, yeah. so what we're looking at is like the bottom is the structure that you're in now. And then it has this windmill built, built on top of it. Uh, which, wooden- yeah sadly now gone because it, it was all wood and that that picture was taken in, in uh, about 1860. that is incredible yeah um, what did it look like when you purchased the property was it like that no <laughs> <laughs> so you can see the behind me uh, where are we <laughs> yeah so there's these brick buttresses um mm-hmm. there's four of those and they were just like so when we bought it it just looked like a ruin across the field, you know, um, just four buttresses, a little bit of wall left, not very much. Um, and it looked like uh, in the Victorian times, people would, there's a thing called a folly. I don't know if, if you're familiar with that. Okay. Term. And a folly was like a Victorian thing. They would make uh, something in their grounds, which looked uh, like a ruin um, and, a point of interest so when their friends came around they could wander down to the uh to the folly and um and it would be like a sort of talking point that's okay. what it, that's what it looked like it just looked like a ruin across the field mm-hmm. uh, 
and I didn't really didn't really think much about it. It was like, well, that's where the windmill was. It was the interesting thing is it was slowly the brick. So these brick buttresses, they're about two hundred years old, wow. and they were they were left open to the elements, obviously for for hundred plus years, um, and uh, it was just basically breaking down. You know, the walls were slowly, you know, breaking down with the weather and stuff, and um, and the other part of the house, there's a lot that we have some barns attached to the house. And when we bought the house, that the barns were what I was going to convert into the windmill. Um, and then we looked into that financially. It was quite a, quite a commitment, quite quite mm -hmm. a lot of money to do that. It was quite a big space. And just by chance, as always in life, um, a friend of my wife's, uh, my mother-in-law's friend, um, who specializes in green builds, he just said, well, what about the mill? I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we could we could make the walls out of straw bales. We could uh, get some reclaimed wood for the floor and the roof. Um, and, and that was it. Hey, presto, we started that, that journey, did some drawings, and it took about a year. Um, wow. And, and, you know, the straw, the straw bales have been the best thing ever because, firstly, it's sound. They're so thick, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like two feet across or something. Um, so the sound doesn't get out. But what it does acoustically, which is purely by accident, is it absorbs a lot of the bass. Um, so the sound in here is very controlled in, inside the actual room. That's um, amazing. Yeah, so I think that's partly why it sounds like it does, you know. In here. And it, sound, it sounds incredible. I think, you know, anyone who hears, um, even just the clips posted on Instagram, the sound is incredible. And it's- Thank you I very think, much, yeah. Right, absolutely. Oh, and there's a picture of the inside. Um, yeah. So great. It looks as great as it sounds, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm how great that you have that space right now where everyone is at home and, yeah. you know, um, recording from home and doing everything they can from their, their uh, home studios. So it's fantastic. Well, trust me, I, I, every single day I look up and go, thanks very much. It is, I, I know how lucky I am, you know. And I'm very grateful that, that that I've got this space, you know. Um, and so this is, it's about eight years old now. Uh, we're going, as in this Christmas, it would be eight years. Um, and I'm 51. So if you think about it, it takes a while. Because I know a lot of people look at my place and go, man, how, you, how lucky are you? You've got that incredible space. But it's, it. I'm in... I'm older, <laughs> you know, it's taken me a while to get to the stage where this sort of stuff happens. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't really happen overnight for normal uh, people that earn a living, <laughs> which is what I consider myself. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It, and, and it's been a, it's been, um, you know, a path for you to get yeah. to this point in your life for sure. Um, we want to go back and talk about a lot of that stuff over the years, the things that you did, of course, now, there's no touring happening and the live gigs aren't happening, but you spent so many years doing so much of that. Um, and I kind of want to go back um, to 1994 because I love the stories that you've told about playing at Woodstock. Yeah. 94. And I remember, you know, the, the acts that played that, that event um, for me as a young drummer at the time, just being so excited to see, 
so many of my favorite musicians on stage and playing and the whole thought of Woodstock and the history that's behind it and this kind of revival of that. Um, So I love to talk to you about about Woodstock and your experience there. And I would love for you to share some of that too. Yeah, so Woodstock for me, that the band that I was with, uh, and I still play with them, is a Scottish band called Delamitri. And at the time, uh, in 95 actually, so 94 was the beginning of their sort of campaign in America. And that was part, they were signed to A&M, and that was part of the sort of push to get the band uh, a foothold in America mm-hmm. and it worked because about a year later they had a top 10 hit uh, and I think it's their most still their most successful uh, song a track called Roll to Me um, but they finished the record which was called Twisted and um, there's a great drummer called Chris Sharrock that played on the record um, he's a Liverpool drummer mm-hmm. uh, and he now plays with Noel Gallagher um, right. and he's a fantastic fantastic drummer um, it's like a sort of mix between Ringo Starr and Keith Moon, but he's really good with a click. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, lots of uh, producers and, and artists love drummers like that. Mm-hmm. So they've got a foot firmly in uh, pop music and rock and roll and all those things, but they're also useful when you get them in the studio. Anyway, so he did the record and he didn't want to tour because he was very, very busy. I got an audition incredibly. Um I was very lucky when I moved to London. I met Pino Palladino lived in my street. And, wow. uh, and a few years later, Pino put me up for the, for the audition for this band. He knew their manager and he knew that they were looking for a young drummer to go on the road. Um, so I luckily I got the gig and um, to where Woodstock came in, it was pretty quick. Uh, I, Woodstock was my fifth gig. Wow. Um, we'd done, we did a couple of gigs in Ireland and a couple of gigs up in, in small parts on the sort of west coast of Scotland in, in remote parts of uh, Scotland. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, right, we're off to Los Angeles. Um, and I was 24, never been to America, um, about to play Woodstock. I was just up until that point was pretty much just playing pubs and clubs in London as well. Um, just madness. You know, the, the change in everything, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we were rehearsing in in Los Angeles at a, an old sparring gym of Muhammad Ali's. Wow! And was, we were in one room, and next door the Chili Peppers were next door <laughs> uh, rehearsing for Woodstock. The same, wow. you know? um, and Chad he had that amazing, that really colourful kit. I think that Pearl did him. Mm-hmm. That one that looked like it's sort of been hand painted and sprayed, dead funky, cool looking thing, anyway. Yes. Um, and we would get in in the morning and rehearse all day long. And those guys would come in about sort of lunchtime, all mm-hmm. on Harley Davidson's. And I remember thinking, this is insane. Like, the, like you know, just it's it, like dreamlike sort of um, scenario, really, for a young drummer. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was playing in little clubs and pubs in London. And then within a few weeks, I'm in Los Angeles and, and Chad Smith's fucking hear him rehearsing next door. Right. Um, one night uh, they disappeared and I went in and I just sort of snuck into their room and I, and I thought, I'm going to play, I'm going to play his drums. <laughs> so I sat and I've got to pick the sticks up, play the drums, 
put the sticks down, you know, didn't damage anything and just had a little play of the kit. And then next morning, um, he, he came in and he goes, you've been playing my fucking drums. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I've not been playing them. He goes, you sure? And I'm like, actually, yeah, I did. <laughs> he goes, I knew it. And because basically he puts his sticks on the floor, Tom. Okay. Um, every single time when he's finished playing, he put, I think it's the floor, Tom. It might be, might be this. Anyway, it's either snare. I can't remember which one it was. I think it's floor. Mm. And I put the sticks down on the snare. Oh, no. And he knew someone. He came in in the morning like someone's been playing this drum kit. And they were, put, they were put down respectfully in the right of place. Course. We knew like a drummer, a drummer's been playing it, and I was the first, you know, suspect on the list. <laughs> um, uh, and then years later, absolutely decades later, um, you know, twenty odd years later, I'm in a hotel in Manchester, and Chad's there, and someone introduces to me, and I said, "Look, I don't, I don't expect you to remember, but I was, uh, I've met you before." He's like, oh, "Okay, you know." I'm like looking like this now, not 24 years old. <laughs> and he goes, uh, where, where was it? I said, it was in LA. Uh, I know I was rehearsing. And uh, he went, sticks on the floor, Tom. Oh. I'm, like, I'm like, yeah. How do you remember that? He goes, I already, he goes, I already remembered. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, you know, just ridiculous that he remembered that. Um, I, just, I think I must have mentioned the band to give him some sort of inkling. Right. Uh, of, of what happened but yeah you remembered that um what a dude you know and that's, yeah that's incredible every now and again he comments on my stuff you know on on social media but anyway getting back to Woodstock and how was it mm-hmm. um, so we rehearsed and then I remember the band the singer being very very nervous indeed I was really it was the biggest gig I've ever done in my life that's a huge gig yeah you know I, I can't sort of emphasize enough I was just playing in pubs, really. And then literally two weeks later or whatever, I'm doing that. Um, and I remember the tour manager who is a really dear friend of mine now. At the time, he's like a, a, a Liverpool guy, scouser, mm-hmm. wind-up merchant, you know, always picking fun, thinking of a, of a, of a something to, to trip you up. And he said to me, just before we went on, it was, I said to him, how many people are here? And he said, well, about 200,000. <laughs> wow. And, he goes, and Bob Clearmountain's doing the sound. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Because Bob Clearmountain, a very famous mix engineer, mm-hmm. they were, A&M were recording it. Uh, all the A&M artists were recorded. Um and so yeah, it was my, it was like my fifth gig, and it's been recorded by Bob Clearmountain, and it was a lot of a lot of pressure. But I really enjoyed the gig. Um, there's some footage I, that I've got on YouTube that I found. Um, but I just remember the singer really, really not enjoying it at all. And I, but yeah. I remember again, I really this is the, like the most. This is what's interesting about bands. There's so many personalities and so so much energy negative and positive going on all the time mm-hmm. so for him he wanted the world a massive hole to open up so he could jump down it and i'm at the same time going this is unbelievable looking out at, at well at endless amount of people 
That's amazing. I, yeah. I love that you were able to recognize the fact of how amazing the opportunity was and enjoy the moment. Cause I think that's a hard thing to do sometimes, you know, if you have, you know, you're nervous or um, whatever's going on that kind of gets in your head and it, and it makes you not be able to really kind of like live in that moment. But I love the fact that you did and you have that super positive memory of looking out um, at the crowd. I remember that, that event, it rained a couple of days, right? But you guys didn't, so we yeah we, we were Friday I think uh, the Friday um, which I think was an extra day or something like that mm -hmm. uh, and there there was mud down the front because I remember seeing all those people just like splattered around you know <laughs> like in, insane I mean you know very much like the original Woodstock you know mm -hmm. um, and and the ninety four one it was a eventually that they don't know how many people went because the whole thing with the fences, they went down and in the end they sort of gave up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it was nuts, but yeah, what a, um, what a thing. And, um, and then from then on, that was like I say, that was the sort of beginning of Delamitri's sort of campaign into America. And then we toured and we played and toured and, and did lots and lots and lots and like now I look back on it and not many bands will do that not many British bands will do that in America like three months stop mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks and then go again and they get back on it yeah and and you so you essentially spent years on on the road um yeah with them it was like yeah a couple of a couple of years pretty much non-stop touring yeah with them and then I toured with other, another band and it was I, yeah like you mentioned earlier that is how I earned my living um, as a young musician, I, you know, studio thing didn't, wasn't open for me at that point, you know. And you, you know, you mentioned, um, the singer and, you know, the issue with the nerves and, and everything. Um, he's how, over that now. He's over that good. <laughs> yeah, he's over it. I get, I tend to get nervous for other people. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, people that I really care about, um, personally, when I see them play or, or, or perform or something like that. I, I get nervous for them. I think my heart races yeah. and you know, <laughs> I don't know why. Well, it, it's, that's an interesting thing. Cause I, I feel that I don't like, I like being around people on a live gig mm. that, are that are composed and kind of together and mm -hmm. aren't really, if they are no nervous, they do very well of not showing it. Um, and I think that is also something that you learn to do. You know, you just learn to control that that energy. And for me, I try and push it into a positive place every time. And and like you know, so doing the voice for the amount of time I did that is actually much more nerve wracking than live playing live. You know, I bet TV is is full on because there's so many people looking at you and, and wanting you to be to play it exactly right. Where it's a gig, you can sort of get away with a couple of things, you know. Right, right, absolutely. And you, yeah, somebody. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. So somebody might notice it, but maybe they won't, you know. But if you've sure. got three, and it's broadcast, three, right? You're sending that out to you know so many people watching on TV and the reruns and the clips online and you know, right. it actually like lives on forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bass player in the voice band, he's still doing it. Um, Ben, his biggest nightmare was when we do the 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 more involved sort of 
um, tracks where they would, you know, most, I think generally, if you play on the voice band, you're kind of in the back. Mm -hmm. You're there and they recognize that there's a band playing, but really they don't make much of a deal of the band until it gets to the semi final and stuff. Um, and then they start bringing the drums down and they start bringing the instruments down. Mm -hmm. and the bass player would always, his biggest thing, and it probably still is, is being called down to play the bass down the front and falling over a monitor or tripping over his lead and it being on YouTube for the rest of his life. That, that's all he was worried about, you know, it, which is incredible because he's like, He's playing on hundreds of tracks. Mm -hmm. And the only sort of anxiety he's really got is, is because he knows if you fall over on a TV show, that is going to be living and lasting much longer than your greatest moment playing fretless bass on that ballad. Yeah. <laughs> or, I, you know, yeah. I feel like the pressure <laughs> nowadays with every, with social media is so high. Because yeah. not only, you know, that the clip will live on forever and be reposted, but then you could become a meme, you know, yeah. people, just, <laughs> yeah. it's so, it's so nerve wracking. I yeah. can, I can imagine that. Um, and often, often those would be live. So like, if you did fall over, that's it. Right. And the camera caught it. That was, that was the end of that. Um, you can't get back. Yeah. And you were you were on The Voice for years, right? I did seven years. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And there yeah. you are. We have a picture of you on the on the stage. <laughs> you're standing. The stage yeah. is behind you in that picture, right? That's right. Yeah. So the band are looking out towards the um, the coaches. I love it. Were you? Did you ever sit in one of those chairs? I know you played Chad Smith's kit, but did you ever sit in the? Yeah, we <laughs> were. It very unglamorously would have sort of lunch, you know, sat in, in the, the chair. chair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> We're rehearsing, cup of tea. Yeah. I love it. That's so great. And how cool is it too to just um, have the opportunity to witness some of some new talent in that aspect too? I mean, you must have seen people come across that stage yeah. and just been blown away. Definitely. Um, we we added it up. I in my seven years there was I, I heard a thousand singers. Wow. Yeah. My uh, goodness. That's and and you know it's interesting that there were some really great people. There's no question. Um, it's in that whole way of you know, how that came about. I, I don't really know. I think it's um, it's an interesting change in the way that talent has been found. You know. Mm -hmm. but it works and it gives people a platform and I guess you know it's it's got to be there you know yeah absolutely I mean you think about how um how things were measured back in the day it's come in such a different direction I mean it was how many albums have you sold um yeah. that kind of thing and now it's just it's such a different way to um to kind of gauge someone's influence, how how many followers do you have, and how yeah. many likes and and comments, and it's a little bit of a different world, and it, it's come in that direction so quickly. Yeah. Right. Um, so so back to your days on the road. Yeah. Um, you you I mean the 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 artists that you played with um, just phenomenal. 
um, artist and the and the experience on the road. It can, is there any, ever an uh, instance where you played with someone you felt even made you a better musician or kind of influenced you in that way or was really great to play with? Yeah, um, well, you know, without sort of sounding soppy, everybody, mm. you know, I, I would get something from every single tour. Um, and I, I always being fortunate to meet Pino and, and one of the messages that I got from him when I was a younger musician was it's okay to play all different styles of music. Um, because in England, it's quite interesting, you know, the, the sort of pop producers, if you remotely venture into jazz or funk or fusion, then you can't play in blur or in some sort of mainstream British British pop band, mm -hmm. you, you're almost too good. And, and the things that you play uh, won't be cool, you know, mm. because, because you're too good, if you understand that. Yeah, and I understand what you're it's, saying. It's sort of like a reverse snobbery. Right. You know, because you know, you know, jazz musicians get accused of being snobs because people aren't good enough. And then, but in certainly there are there are British musicians, British producers that if you're too good, they don't really like you, <laughs> you know. And, and it, you know, it's yeah. I don't know if that happens in America, but it's certainly that is present in in the UK. And I have to try my hardest still here, um, bringing energy to a recording that has got some sort of naivety to it sometimes. Mm. Because if you're too good and too smooth, people don't like it. We can program that. I got it. Yeah, they they want the feeling of yeah. live drumming, and you know that it's yeah, it's not it's not perfection, right? So uh, yeah, a little bit. If you think of the extremes, like Keith Moon, for instance, everybody accuses Keith of not being very tight, mm. you know, time wise. Mm -hmm. But Manny brought energy to the to the band mm -hmm. and it's and it's getting that right getting the, the precision right and getting the energy right um and you know in some respects producers are right they need you know it's right to have that energy um but it's interesting that that there is that that attitude and and pino anyway was the was the person really that said to me it's cool you know you can play for a scottish rock band mm -hmm. but then you can also you can play in a in a with a jazz fusion piano player, it's fine. Cause it's just music. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful for that message because over the years now I've played with lots of different people, you know, definitely different styles and I love them all. That's, that's the thing that used to frustrate me with people being sort of slightly, oh, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, you, you know, cause it's, you're a British drummer. You shouldn't be playing um, West coast, jazz fusion you can't do it like why can't i do it yeah why can't i play reggae why can't i play latin even though i'm english my latin feel obviously isn't going to feel like i'm from cuba but i still love the music it's like and and pino definitely instilled that in me and i and i'm really thankful for that because i've kept it through for you know 30 years that 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 thought so my touring getting back to the touring thing i embraced playing with um all sorts of different people you know 
Um, so yeah. when I, you know, I left Delamitri and joined a British band that was that was playing house music, uh, a band called Faithless, and that was very very different. You know, um, playing to sequences and uh, you know a, a whole different energy. Mm-hmm. I, I love that as well. If you know. And I think, you know, anyone looking at your um, discography can see the amazing array of styles. Um, and also, I mean, I have to ask what you have this amazing um, piece of data and it's the number, the number of number one albums that you've played on. Right. Um, and I think I have to tell this story because I introduced you at PASIC a couple of oh, years yeah. ago. Right. Um, and I usually, before I introduce someone, you know, I'll write up a little, a uh, few notes and then talk with, with the, uh, drummer and just make sure that it's, you know, all accurate and it fits, um, with what's current. And when I went to talk to you, I said, okay, I have this statistic and it's, you know, you've played on this many number one albums. And it was funny because just in the time that that had been written and the time that you were performing, you're like, actually it's it's now this number. And I'm thinking, Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. It, yeah. It changed, changed the other day. You know, it's, it's interesting in that, you know, um, but to be fair, I'm a drop in the ocean compared to people like Steve Gadd. Um, and some of the guys that have been around, I mean, like it's, you know, the music business has changed. And, and I think to get to the numbers that I'm at even, um, is pretty remarkable considering that how much um, real drums are being recorded on records. Um, it's still happening, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm very much staunchly, you know, there's a lot of people that will say, Oh, there's no recording business anymore. It's, it's over, you know, there's no sessions, uh, but there are. Mm-hmm. And I know, and, and as some people will say, yeah, there are for you, but, but they're not just for me. There are sessions going on. Um, there are less, I will stick my hand in there. There definitely are less from even when I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I compare myself to, to, to Gad or someone like that, I mean, God knows, uh, Steve, you, I bet you can't even figure out the number. I mean, it's insanity. You yeah, know? I, I would, I would agree with that. I'm not sure that he knows, you know, at this he doesn't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I'm on, I don't know what I'm on now, but I know it, what happens is you play on stuff. And then you find out like a year later, oh, no, that was number one. Like, I found out a few days ago. Right. There's an, there an album I did for, for a Colombian artist, and it was number one in Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, Panama, and Venezuela, I think, at the same time. Like, wow. Last week. And um, and so there, there are interesting things happening all over the world. It's not just the UK um, and yeah. America. The amazing yeah. thing about being able to record from where you are and yeah. you know send that to where wherever it's needed um yeah. you know that's amazing i do love hearing something that you've played on and hearing your sound because no matter what style you're playing or who you're playing with um you have a really distinct sound to your you're playing just your, your personal style and it comes through. And I think that's something that's pretty unique. You know, um, it's like Gad. I mean, you hear, you hear Gad playing on something and you know that it's Steve Gad. And, yeah. you know. Well, that's, that's the greatest compliment you could ever give me that really, to be honest with you. 
Thank you. Because you, you try. You, I think all musicians try. It's 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 one thing being really fast, you know. It's one thing being really loud, etc. But it's very difficult to have a soon as you play that people go, oh yeah, it's that guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and we all look at those musicians, and um, I still do, and I still want to be them, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm still very much the ten-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've, it's incredible that you feel that, um, about my plan. Um, thank, thanks. I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And I know, I know that a lot of people would agree with that too. So, um, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that, um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, is kind of a combination of a few of the things we've just recently, uh, covered. Um, different styles, playing different styles, and then also um, your signature sound um, coming through on things. Um, one of those things is an album that's going to be released fairly soon, right? Um, that you did, um, that you played on with Bob Marley. Yeah, that's a strange uh, request to have that happen. So I did it actually, I recorded it um, about a year and over a year ago. And this this year was the 75th anniversary of uh, Bob, and and he, they've been put the Marley uh, estate have been putting out a few things this year to celebrate his 75th, and um, and this album was going to be part of it, uh, and it was supposed to come out in the spring, and then everything, it all mm -hmm. went wobbly as we know. Right. And as far as I'm aware, it's coming out this coming spring. So. Um, yeah, and it's a weird one. So what happened, you know, I, I enjoy reggae and I and I, I enjoy the sounds and I'm still experimenting trying to get the sounds right from that era that, you know, um, it's particularly cool sound that, that the snare drum makes and the, and the kit makes. Um, and an engineer saw me playing that style and... Um, there was a record being made of they were basically adding strings to a Bob to some very famous Bob Marley tracks to, to create another record. Mm -hmm. um, and the arrangements were changing a little bit um, and they wanted a bit more control over the drums um, and they wanted somebody to replace the drums from the original records. And I'm like, no one can do that. <laughs> no, no one should be allowed to do that, really. Um, but it was a gig that was offered to me, and I took it as a challenge. And I don't know how people are going to feel about it when they hear the record. Um, but, yeah, basically I, I, I played on some stuff with, with Bob and the, on the Wailers. Um, and the one, there's a, there was a couple of tracks, but one particular that I'm sort of most proud of. There's a tune that didn't have drums originally. Mm -hmm. um, so they asked me if I could put some new drums to this Bob Marley tune, which didn't have kit ever. Um, and I'm most proud of that because it's like, okay, well, that's almost like a real session on being asked to play a part on a, on a track. Yeah. To create, to create a part. That's yeah. amazing. And I would love to point out that um, in the intro, that music that you hear, that is Ash Stone. So <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, so I love those sounds, you know, and I'm still experimenting. 
um, with that with that stuff. So now uh, with the Whalers, uh, the drummer that's with the Whalers now is the nephew of the original drummer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Aston Barrett Jr., his name is. And Carlton Barrett was the drummer with the Whalers. And that's the drummer that I was listening to when I had to cop what he was playing on the Bob Marley stuff. Um, and the sound, just the sound of it, the snare drum in particular, like, you know, there's nothing quite like it, really. If you listen to those Bob Marley tunes, again, in, instantly recognizable, mm -hmm. that snare sound, I think. Um, and Aston, he was really cool. Uh, you know, he basically told me which snare is is the snare to use. And it, it, the one that uh, Carlton used to use was a, a Ludwig uh, superphonic um cranked to high heaven you know, <laughs> just like like a timbali with some wires on it, you know um and and then it's not it's not just that there's some stuff that they do with compression and that make and eq that makes it sound a particular way that i'm still fascinated by that sound you know absolutely yeah when you first sent me that clip i was like this is just incredibly cool and so different from anything else that I've heard you play. So I loved it. Yeah, I was very lucky. You know, one of the greatest things about London. So when I moved to London, uh, I also met another bass player who really is responsible for sort of putting, setting me on the right path for reggae. He's a, he's a bass player called Winston Blissett. And he plays with a band called Massive Attack, a British band. Mm -hmm. Massive mm -hmm. Attack. So... When I, in, in my early 20s, I was playing in a pub and this guy came in and saw the band and we got chatting and we eventually started playing. And he actually, he's not from Jamaica, but I think he's from one of the islands. Uh, and he, he sat on my drums and showed me how to play reggae drums and he explained the feel. So a bass player was playing the drums, show, uh, you know, showing me the feel. And, and I will thank him for this, you know, to this day for sort of setting me on the right direction. Mm -hmm. It's down that way. <laughs> that's where you go. That, that's so incredibly important. And, you know, I think that, um, that all of us can really recognize the people that came before us and, and helped along the way, helped along the path. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's so much knowledge gained over the years that, to tap into that, to ask, you know, ask for advice or help whenever um, yeah. is needed is so important. Um, and I uh, kind of along those lines, I wanted to talk about the relationships that are developed in this industry. Um, and especially among the drumming community, I feel like it's just this, there's something that connects everyone. It's not um, as competitive maybe as other instruments can get. Um, there's this really serious community of drummers who care about each other. Um, we actually have a photo of you with Stanton Moore and Steve Gadd. Um, there you guys are. <laughs> um, I think I, maybe I even took that picture. I remember I that. Back, the, yeah. Yeah. In, at, um, uh, right before the NAMM show. That's when that was taken in yeah. January when we had no idea what was to come in 2020. <laughs> so, absolutely clueless weren't we we were we were we were just you know moving along like everything was normal <laughs> um, yeah but um but i just think you know 
so you, Steve is one of your um, influences, you know, from, from over the years and then meeting Stanton. And I was also there to witness the meeting of Ash Stone and Stanton Moore, which will go down in history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just those connections that kind of carry all of us through and um, make this industry a most amazing place to be. Uh, yeah. It's so important. Yeah. And, and I think part of the thing that you're talking about, I think, you know, so when you play in the instrument, you know what that feels like. And if you're, if you lean towards a particular feel and style of music and you play in a particular way, when you meet people that are like-minded. So when I, like immediately when I met Stanton, it was just like, bam. <laughs> and I, someone had said to me, it's going to be like that. A couple mm -hmm. of people had said to me, when you meet Stanton, it's just going to be like brothers. And, and they were right. I mean, and, and I think what, his personality obviously is a very open giving bloke, you know, he's a fantastic ambassador for drums. Um, but his, the way he plays is, is what really connects us actually. Cause I, I get what he's doing. I don't understand completely what he's doing. I would love to know. And he's shown me a lot of that New Orleans stuff and I'm, and I'm learning from him. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a back and forth and, you know, he's talked to me about microphones and I think, that is reflective with a lot of guys in, mm -hmm. in 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 drums. I think people, I think you know, I think there is competition, but I think it's healthy mainly. Sure, um, you know, but yeah, I think that that sort of shared journey, that shared feeling, that you know what that person is going through when they're playing like that. Absolutely, um, I think is what connects us. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree. There's definitely a feeling of, you know, wanting to be the best or wanting to be really great. Um, and then there's also this community of support. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one person needs something and other people come to their to their aid. Um yeah. is so fantastic. And just watching, you know, watching you you and Stanton in particular, I'm just kind of thinking back, um, talk drums and sound um work things out with brushes on a table you know it's like it's yeah. just a, it's a really great thing to see and to witness and um you know how lucky are we to be in I this know. community how lucky exactly and also you know we mustn't forget the drum industry as well so you guys you know um that is also part of it because, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that Gretsch and Zildjian and all the companies that, you know, that I work with, if the people that we work with, if they were all, you know, standoffish people, then that, that whole community would, there'd be a piece missing, but it's very much connected. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say, you know, at these events at PASIC and NAM, it is like a giant family reunion in a way where, you see all those people, you see the musicians, you see the people from the industry. Um, there are just so many people that you can count among your friends and, you know, the family that you choose to have as your family. So, yeah. and you get that moment like, oh, we, oh yeah, we're working. Yes. Wait, this is a job. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is work. Yeah. You know, exactly. And uh, that, that's the greatest thing ever with music really as well, you know, for me, um, is that it never feels like work. You know? That is a great, that is a great thing. I think that's something that, um, 
you know, you look at your children, for example, and think about what they will be when they grow up or, um, you know, what they're into. And the, the hope is that they'll find something like, like music feels to you, right? Where you're doing, you're doing this, this is your livelihood, but it's also something that just makes you incredibly happy and that you love so much. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, like what you've said there is absolutely key, really, isn't mm. it? Finding something. Um, I'm I'm very much like there's music around. They've got instruments. My kids uh, they can come in here whenever they like. But I'm not I'm not pushing that on them mm-hmm. to, to do that thing, you know. Um, but it's around, and I think if it's in them, then they've got the perfect place to 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 um, to develop it. But you know, my my son, he's he's really into. Um, anything with wheels <laughs> skateboards scooters bmx mm-hmm. downhill biking the whole thing extreme, um, extreme sports and now i mean the way the world is you may as well if you really love that and you get really good at it you can probably earn as good a living at doing that as long as you don't break too many bones is, is anything else right. <laughs> why not you know right that is so true why not right exactly um, sponsored by red bull go for it right there you go. <laughs> I love it. Um, and what do you, um, you know, what do you, what do your kids think about the fact that their, their dad is, do they, do they have any kind of like concept of what you do and, and well, who your, your contacts are kind of thing? A little bit, a little, um, but I don't think it's going to sink in until a, a few few more years when they're both sort of teenagers. I don't think, like right. you know, when I was on TV like for half the year every Saturday night, and they never watched it, yeah. and, all, and then and, all, and then all their friends would go, "Oh, there's there's Spike's dad," you know, we see him on saw him on TV Saturday night. They don't, they don't even bat an eye. <laughs> kids are right. kind of, it's, it's just kids, a part of life, right? Pretty hard. Kids are just like, yeah. So what? <laughs> interesting um and uh, you know and then very strange scenarios which hopefully you know for instance i've been been working with julian lennon um for the last year actually music is now starting to come out from some of the stuff that we've been working on wow and julian um and you know people will facetime me and offer my daughters around like um i worked on a track um uh, a few weeks ago and Brian Adams, I, I was partly uh, responsible for getting Brian Adams involved in the track because I've worked wow. with him before and, mm-hmm. and he FaceTimed me um, as my daughter was there um, and she saw him and he's like, she's waving at him, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really mean anything. And then later on that day, I showed her a YouTube clip of him playing to 80,000 people. And she's like, oh, that's just, I'm like, yeah. But still, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a bloke kind of <laughs> on a screen. But maybe eventually she'll go, oh, my God, my dad. I remember my dad FaceTiming Brian Adams. Right. You know, yeah, maybe, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I don't know. Part of and her history. Same thing with Julian Lennon. You know, Julian, she she was in the room and Julian was um, FaceTiming me and listening to the whole discussion about the record mm-hmm. and things like that. And I don't know if if it means anything or if it will eventually mean something to her. I don't know. You know. That's amazing. I pro- probably when their styles of music kind of like align with what you're playing and they get excited that you're, you know, recording with so and so. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting because most of the people I feel like in this industry are more down to earth than you would ever imagine. Um, in fact, I remember, you know, you talking about your recording sessions with Adele and, you know, she's such a superstar. Um, but, you know, you you were your your um, conversations with her were so normal. Right. Well, she, she I don't know what she's like now. So when I work with her. 19 was out and this was obviously uh actually the last track to go on 21. Mm-hmm. um and yeah she's very much down to where she was very down to earth mm-hmm. um, funny just Amazing. you know so, but really into it you know right uh, because like there's an artist i can't mention really but there's an artist i've done five albums with uh a british artist and um i've never seen him at a session wow and i did i played on one track for adele and she was there that's amazing well it sort of says quite a lot <laughs> yeah right you know, right yeah. interested in in the the actual the whole, like, process, the whole process of making your record mm-hmm. you know it's interesting you know pop music it can be bubblegum and and thin at one end of the spectrum but then absolute art you know as pure as any you know van gogh at the other end mm-hmm. and then there's everything in the middle you know and some of the artists that i get to work with you know there's some artists i can mention that, that it's not about the music mm-hmm. it's from it it's about the fame it's about the fashion it's about the numbers and that's what it's about it's not about the chords and about the sentiment of the song and the lyric. And then there are other people that that's all it's about is, mm-hmm. is the lyric and is this music going to move someone? Is it credible when I'm dead? Is it going to actually still be standing up? Right. Some people are like that. And then, I mean, that's what I love about, and I, to be honest with you, I quite like playing on the, on the bubblegum stuff that's just nonsense because it's kind of easy and it's like, it's quite a bit of fun. And yeah, I right. And ironically, that's the stuff my kids listen to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, there's also the deeper thing that, that's great. And, I'm, I, you know, as musicians, it's fantastic to experience that whole spectrum, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, what are you what are you doing right now besides, you know, you're you're doing these remote recordings? Yeah. Um, what do you have coming up, um, you know, in the in. 2021 well there's a there's an artist that i've done three albums for and she is doing another one which i think we're going to start in january and that'll that'll be fully remote uh she lives in los angeles the producer's in london so Mm -hmm. uh as far as i know we're thumbs up we're going to start that in january which i'm looking forward to um i've got lots of little sessions going on all the time um from all over the place like uh Mm -hmm. like we mentioned earlier I'm getting so many artists from like all over the world on different levels too uh, that are contacting me to do stuff. Um, so yeah, it's constant. I'm also working on a, at the moment I'm doing, um, there's a company called Tune Track mm-hmm. um, that do like sort of sample packs. Um, and I, I've done one before and I'm working on one from here and I'm, that's, quite a commitment the time that that takes to do right uh, so i'm doing that as well at the moment um 
yeah, just en endless stuff, really. Um, I'm getting a lot of pressure from people to do more drum orientated things like lessons and, um, you know, uh, like masterclasses. I know mm -hmm. Stanton's all over it. Yeah. So I'm slowly getting there with the technology and trying to figure it out how we can do that. So basically streaming, it's all very well streaming this. Mm -hmm. um, one microphone on a laptop and one camera. Um, what's a lot harder is when you get a drum kit <laughs> and trying to sync that up. Uh, Stanton's got it together, and it, there is a way of doing it. And uh, maybe when I get that down, I might do when some. When you have time, right, in between all these other things that you're that you're involved with. Telemetry um, yeah. have a new record coming out, and we are recording another one at the moment too. That's going to be like a sort of B sides record. Um, so I'm doing that as well at the moment. We're I'm having him done like two tracks out of the ten. So. <laughs> Yeah, I've got lots of stuff all stacking up. Um, That's great. That's so great. I'm and, very, you know, yeah, we're we're all really hoping that um, you know things open up. Then yeah, once once people are um, getting vaccinated and you know everything is uh, is yeah. improving over the next however many months. Hopefully, we'll yeah. all be back together. Well, let's hope summer. You know. I think the great hope here is that the summer, that some of the festivals might start. Um, that would be amazing. Like this year I was supposed to do Glastonbury again and, you know, all of those fantastic things. And I was supposed to do a, a, a blues thing um, out in the Mediterranean that, that and all of this stuff was canceled and it's like, eh. but hopefully that stuff will be re we will do in Glastonbury this year, next year rather, you know, in 2020. Right. Um, yeah. That's the hope. I, it does seem like you know a lot of a lot of um, people have said that after an experience like this, there's a renaissance. So hopefully, yeah. you know, I know we're we're all uh, hoping that that is what happens. There's lots of live music. There's lots of events to attend. Yeah. Um, I think people are going to go nuts. I think they're just going right. to be so ready for music. It's going to be fantastic. You know? I agree. I agree. My my fingers are crossed there. Yeah. Um, this this is what I say to some of the young drummers that I that I talk to is I know it's hard now. If you can just hang in there just a little bit longer, I, I think when the change comes, it's you're gonna be which gig do I take? You know, right. There will there will be so many opportunities for you know, and I, and it has to be very, very hard to be starting out right now. Um, you know, kind of finding your your path. Yeah. Um but, you know, I think we've got some more months of, you know, hunkering down. And one yeah. thing people might not know about you is that you have um, you have pigs. You're in your air, you know, your uh, your farm. I <laughs> yeah, only one pig now, sadly. One um, pig. We did have um, 15. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. At the, when we, we had piglets. In fact, the mill here w was there was a tree over there. Um, and uh, just like lots of weeds and stuff growing in the middle. So I put the piglets in here the first summer that we had them. Oh just my gosh. To clear the, uh, to clear all the, the nettles and stuff. Rush, yeah. Um, but now we've just got one pig left. Um, and for all the vegans out there, we sold a lot of the pigs. We, uh, didn't eat them all. <laughs> <laughs> 
the one that we've got left is the is was the runt of the litter actually the little she's about this big she's definitely not that big now wow how how big is she now N- I'm enormous I mean like it's probably as big as the couch in the studio <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, And she's called Nerd, her name is. Um, Named because my brother-in-law said to my wife, oh, you should name one of the pigs after me. So we did. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. So you have, you're busy. You have a lot of stuff to take care of. So much. Yeah, totally. There's always something going on. And, you know, the, the yeah the animals uh we've got chickens too and blah 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 it's like yeah it's effort yes chickens are more effort i think than than people realize there (laughs) and i i also have chickens and we are constantly you know battling nature with the chickens because you know everything wants to eat the chickens so (laughs) yeah everything wants to eat them they they want to eat everything that they're not allowed yeah that too yes they're not very bright uh, in some respects, that's that's a challenge. Yeah, uh, the pig. Oh, by the way, pigs are very bright. Like I've heard that. Oh my word, it's, it's shocking actually. That's like amazing. much more intelligent intelligent than dogs, I think. You know. Um, so, <laughs> the electric, an electric fence. Do you know? Do you know that? You know what that is, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So there's an electric fence that keeps keeps the that kept both of our pigs in. Mm-hmm. Um. And the mum of the one that we have left now, she figured out that if she turns the earth over at the bottom of where the wire, and it touches the wire, that she hears it going into the ground. Oh, my gosh. And she knows she won't get a belt on the other side. That's amazing. Yeah, because it cycles around the fence, right, the current. It, it, yeah. would just, it would just go into the ground there, and she wouldn't get an electric shock, and she'd get out. So she she figured it out. It's like, oh my god! It's like a Jurassic Park, park moment of like, right? You know, clever girl, <laughs> you know, unbelievable. Oh my goodness, that's a, that's amazing. In yeah. fact, I was talking to a friend of mine, and we're like, I'm not sure I could figure that out. Right. <laughs> that's what they say. Anyway, yeah. So they are pretty bright, uh, unlike chickens. I love it. Yes, unlike chickens. Yeah. <laughs> it's a battle. Oh, thank you so much, Ash. Thanks for being here today and sharing with us. And um, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you in person soon enough. I know. I hope so, Sarah. You know, it seems like a, such a mad time when I last saw you in January. And here we yeah. are looking at another January imminently. Oh. In, in a way that feels like about 10 years ago, to be honest. I know. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Well, I definitely look a bit older than <laughs> Oh, you look great. You have the the quarantine beard happening there. Exactly. I'm just like, whatever. Great. Perfect. What better time than to grow a beard, right? Exactly. When no one's looking except for the thousands that are watching this. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I will see you on uh, social media, and um, we will talk soon, I'm sure. All right. Hang in there, everyone, and thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Take care. Good luck. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.